0: Hello everybody and welcome to the American Shoreline podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. One of my favorite parts of the American Shoreline, Tyler, is the great state of Alaska, an amazing place I've had the chance to visit a couple of times. I've never been way north. I've been to Petersburg, Alaska a few times and had some great trips there. A stunning, stunning state. And uh, The subject
1: area, the geographic area of the show we're going to do today, Tyler. Well, if you've been paying attention to Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network, the pebble mine is not exactly a new topic for you because we have covered it for years now uh, as uh, permits have been pulled and activists have spoken out uh, against it. And I suppose there's some interest oriented activists that have spoken out for it. But we followed along every step of the way. And uh, today we are doing a really cool show where we're going to look at the history of this uh, project, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, basically study the details of how uh, activists have been working to fight off this mine that that has the, the terrible potential to really damage the environment up in Alaska. So I'm looking forward to this. We're gonna learn a lot about this specific issue, but I I do believe there will be a carryover for other issues around the American shoreline.
0: Well, I I think the pebble mine proposal in Bristol Bay, Alaska, uh, which is, as many of our listeners around the country may well know, is one of the most productive fisheries on the planet. And I think it is the most productive fishery in terms of tonnages of of catch, uh, in, the, in Alaska, for sure, but the Pebble Mine was going to be a massive open pit mine located in Bristol Bay, the headwaters of the bay, a th- real threat to this tremendous fishery, and uh, we've got an incredible guest to help us understand this project and its fate. Uh, we are going to be speaking today to Austin Williams, who is the Alaska Director of Law and Policy for Trout Unlimited Alaska, one of the key organizations that's been working on the Pebble Mine Project uh, in opposition to the permits for this project for many years. And so I'm really looking forward to talking to Austin and drilling down deep into the Pebble Mine decision and what the heck happened.
1: Another wonky one on the American Shoreline Podcast. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors.
2: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new coastal resilience department headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA Dot com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast Newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at com. That's C H L O E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show.
0: Well, Austin Williams, thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline Podcast.
3: Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, Austin, it's our understanding. We, we've been talking with folks in Alaska for about a, a month or so about doing this show, and we have found our way to the chosen expert, and we're thrilled to have you on the show and help us understand this project. Um, as the Law and Policy Director for Trout Unlimited, Tell us, introduce us, if you don't mind, to yourself and, for, uh, and to your role with Trout Unlimited Alaska.
3: So I first came to Alaska in about 2002. I uh, was fresh out of college with a fisheries degree working in Southeast Alaska for the Forest Service. Um, You know, working in that role for a couple years, uh, you know, I I really, you know, thought I wanted to be a fisheries biologist, but was increasingly interested in the politics and in the policies that affect fisheries issues and habitat issues. Wound up going to law school at the University of Oregon, and fortunately, found my way back to Alaska uh, shortly thereafter. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a fly angler. I had been a member of Trout Unlimited uh, before my academic work, um, and so I was fortunate enough to land here at Trout Unlimited, where I, I now get to oversee a lot of our policy work, uh, our litigation in Alaska, um, and and you know, do a lot of the things that that I think are most important to me when I think about fisheries conservation and think about the future of our, our healthy waters and fisheries. So this has been, uh, an exceptionally fun opportunity for me. And I'm just really glad to be able to work on these issues.
1: Well, I gotta say, you know, from, uh, a a long ways off here in Austin, Texas, it sounds kind of like a dream job being a fly angler working for trout unlimited in Alaska. That strikes me as being a good beat to have Austin. Now, uh, help, help our audience understand a little bit more about Trout Unlimited's portfolio in Alaska. Obviously, we're going to talk about the Pebble Mine a little later in the show, but I'm sure there are other things that you guys focus on as well. What else is going on in Alaska?
3: Sure. So it, it's really an exciting time up here. We have a number of kind of big, iconic projects, such as our work on the Pebble Mine and Bristol Bay. We also do a lot of work on the Tongass National Forest in southeast Alaska, uh, both doing kind of habitat protection work, uh, as well as doing restoration work. We partner with uh, a number of agencies, the Forest Service in particular, doing stream restoration projects. We've we've got a new restoration initiative that we've kicked off in Alaska uh, just this year in partnership with. With the Forest Service and our good friends uh, at the Kinross Mining Company of all of all places, so huh. we're uh, we're tackling a, a huge project on Resurrection Creek outside of the Anchorage area. You know, we're really excited on on that project. We're we're going to be doing uh, you know it's the classic kind of in-stream boulder rolling, moving large woody debris around, restoring the channel type work. Uh, we also do a lot of work with utilities on water conservation uh, work. We've got a big effort on the Eklutna hydropower project where we're trying to return water to that system, um, as well as you know, countless other, other projects that we work on with our chapters. It's a pretty diverse, um, you know, diverse set of issues that we work on, and we're always looking, up, looking for new issues that we can uh, bring our, our resources to bear on.
0: Uh, Austin, when what what year did you join um, uh, Trout Unlimited, and as as one of the attorneys for this great organization?
3: I've I've been with our Alaska office for about eight years now. Uh, I worked briefly in our Wyoming office for two years uh, before that, working on oil and gas, public lands issues in the Intermountain states. Um, you know, but it was. As much as I love the Rocky Mountains, uh, you know, I had I had a great time in that part of the country, but really, you know, Alaska's home for me, and it's, you know, it's when I get up here in the cold, uh, in the the long summer days and the long winter nights that I that I feel at home. So this is very cool. Yeah, you know, this is really the the place that I want to be working.
1: Well, uh, that sounds awesome. I, you know, Trout Unlimited. It's kind of an interesting organization uh, in the sense that I think. Perhaps most of our audience, which is a coastal audience, might imagine Trout Unlimited as being kind of an inland uh, organization. Uh, streams, you know, you envision, you know, the, the streams of Montana or, uh, you know, Colorado and fly fishing in those beautiful places. Uh, but it's interesting that there is a coastal, a very strong coastal presence in, and a strong inland presence, of course, but a strong coastal presence in the organization would you talk a little bit about uh, obviously your coastal presence in Alaska, but maybe also uh, touch on the organization's coastal interests uh, elsewhere in the United States?
3: Yes, I'd be happy to. You know, we definitely focus heavily on inland fisheries. Uh, you know, Montana. Uh, you know, the the whole Rocky Mountain states. We of course have pretty robust members and chapters in some of the eastern brook trout waters as well. Um, but, but really, you know, once you get west, uh, a lot of our effort focuses on salmon and coastal issues. We've been very, you know, very active as an organization in the Klamath, uh, issues in Northern California. We've been very active in the, the snake and, uh, you know, clear water areas in Idaho and Washington and Oregon. And then in Alaska, you know, a lot of the prime, cold water fisheries habitat is related to salmon. You know, even, you know, you look at the, uh, you know, the world famous Kenai river, right? Perhaps Alaska's most popular fishery. You know, a lot of the reason why that river is so incredible is because of the, the sockeye salmon runs that come in each year. And so in Alaska, uh, especially, you know, almost all of our work is related to salmon in one way or another. Of course, you know, I, I love fishing for rainbow trout as much as anyone else, but uh, without the salmon, uh, you know, Alaska's rivers just wouldn't be what they are.
0: Well, it is an extraordinary, extraordinary state. Uh, and it the natural habitat is is stunning and for the listeners out there, if you ever have a chance to get near Alaska and spend any time, it, it'll just blow you away. It's what the, what the planet used to look like before we crawled all over it as a human community. Um, I, wanna wonder, I wonder if you could help our audience understand why Bristol Bay is an important area in the state. Um, and tell us a little bit about that habitat and that fishery.
3: Absolutely. You know, Bristol Bay, the, the whole region is really, you know, it, it's remarkable in so many ways. It's perhaps the, it's definitely North America's and arguably, you know, perhaps the world's best wild salmon fishery. It has, you know, all five Pacific salmon in North America in, in abundance you know, the resident fisheries, the the rainbow trout, the Dolly Varden, the Arctic char are all incredible. And you have vibrant communities and economies built around these fisheries. So we have, uh, you know, Alaska native communities, we have coastal communities that are essentially built up around uh, the waters and the fisheries in these regions. We have, you know, many thousands of jobs that are tied to the fisheries and the waters. We have, you know, a robust commercial fisheries. We have, uh, you know, the the sport fishing is just out of this world. If, you know, if any of your listeners uh, are thinking about the, you know, an iconic Alaska fishing experience where you can catch, you know, rainbow trout that are, you know, as long as your leg and fish over runs that are full of, you know, salmon by the millions, it's really the Bristol Bay region that you're thinking about or that you should be thinking about. And so, you know, there, there's really no other place like it in in North America for certain, perhaps, you know, maybe there's some remote river somewhere in uh, in Russia that can rival some of these areas, but it's, you know, it, it, it's remarkable. And these are all wild native fish that return year after year, if we can just have the sense to to take care of them and not ruin the habitat, and so it's, you know, it's it's truly special. You can talk to, you know, anglers, TU members, you know, in Connecticut, and they'll want to talk about Bristol Bay because it's it's just so so incredible. You know,
0: uh, it, it the reputation of the fishery there uh, in Bristol Bay is pretty good. Uh, from my perspective down here in Austin, Texas, I'm not close to it and don't know the details as, as well as uh, you do and other Alaskans. But what my understanding is the Bristol Bay uh, fishery uh, returns annually something like 30 million salmon return to this region and into these river systems of Bristol Bay to spawn uh, it's just an extraordinarily productive and as you say wild fishery, uh, which is increasingly rare in the Pacific Northwest with all of the, uh, the uh, hatchery fish that are common in say Oregon and Washington or in the Columbia River system. Um, is it a well-managed fishery in your opinion? Uh, is it as vibrant as we are told down here in the lower 48?
3: It, it really is and you know the 30 million figure that you quoted is is likely uh you know on the low end many years we see 50 or 60 million fish uh caught and in many years more than that um you know bristol bay the the new river for example has uh the largest run of chinook salmon in north america it's um you know it's it's actually the only Real run that in recent years has been returning near historic levels. The the sockeye salmon, which is the you know where the large volume of of fish numbers comes from, the the sockeye salmon are are very well managed. Um, you know we've had trouble with commercial fishing issues elsewhere in the country, but um, you know in Bristol Bay, uh, it's it's a pretty well managed fishery. Um, and, you know, if we if we continue to take care of it, these fish are going to return each year. And so it's, um, you know, we've got we've got a good management regime set up both on the commercial and the sport fishing side. Um, and, you know, we we are are doing a good job of taking care of the fish. We just need to make sure we're also taking care of the, the land and the water that supports them.
0: Well, that is exactly uh, the topic of this show now, because the. Uh, you said you had gotten to Trout Unlimited in Alaska about eight years ago, and as legal counsel around, I guess 2013. Um, in 2017, along comes the Pebble Partnership, a business interest that took great, uh, a great interest in what else Bristol Bay has to offer—not just its incredible salmon runs, but also potential mineral resources and filed a permit in December 2017 to develop what is known around the world as the Pebble Mine. Um, I guess you were on the staff at the time that that permit application was filed. Can you tell us a little bit about, if you could reel back in time, uh, what it was like for you and other members of the conservation community to see this permit coming down the highway? And eventually being dropped in the laps of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to develop this incredible mine. Could you take us back to that time where you, uh, what it was like to be in the activist community and see someone propose a project of this magnitude, as you said, in the middle of one of the most productive fisheries in the world?
3: I can. So, you know, the, the, kind of the story of this mine proposal goes back long before my my involvement. Um, there have been you know, there have been a handful of mining companies over the years that have expressed interest in, and invested huge sums of money into exploration and you know kind of the early stages of developing a mine at the Pebble deposit. Um, you know, but interestingly, all of those, you know, large, well-known mining companies kind of recognized that the project just had a ton of, of huge hurdles. It's, it has long been immensely unpopular with the people of Alaska, especially the local residents in the Bristol Bay region. There's a lot of uh, kind of technical challenges with, the, with mining in the Bristol Bay region. One, you know, there's just a huge volume of water that's tied up in the ground and in the the streams and wetlands. And so any mining project of any scale in Bristol Bay has a huge challenges just managing the water that that will inevitably fill the mining pit and you know otherwise be flowing through the region. So and then it's of of course it's a remote area where it's hugely expensive to operate big industrial facilities. And so you know for for various reasons all of the major mining companies had walked away from this project in the past and essentially left uh a single small company uh Northern Dynasty Minerals with the uh with ownership of you know the pebble partnership and it's the the state of Alaska owns the land and the minerals Uh, at the Pebble Deposit and leases those minerals, mineral rights to Northern Dynasty. And, you know, Northern Dynasty has has long been kind of a proponent of this project. And, you know, going back to, you know, kind of 2014, 2015 years, uh, the EPA had looked very hard at, you know, potential impacts from mining in Bristol Bay and uh, had released some proposed restrictions that would have placed limits on mining activity in Bristol Bay. And those, you know, those that proposal um, was subject to, to litigation from Northern Dynasty and the Pebble Partnership um, and essentially stalled out at the end of the Obama years. And so, you know, in the 2016 election, uh, with with President Trump coming into office, you know it was we, we kind of all knew that this was the window that the pebble partnership had been looking for and that this was the you know the political opportunity they wanted and so we expected uh the pebble partnership to apply for its permits and kind of saw it coming you know of, of course we didn't know you know how everything would unfold um and 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 some there are definitely aspects of the permit application itself that were a bit of a surprise. But I think a lot of us saw it coming, especially given the political climate that was prevalent at that point.
0: Would you um, uh, would you fill us in a little bit about what it is that they were going after uh, in terms of minerals and uh, the type of mine that they were proposing to to do, the Pebble Partnership in Northern Mining. Uh, what were they after and how, give us a sense of the scale and the size of the operation that they hope to uh, execute.
3: Yeah, so it's a, it would primarily be a copper mine. Um, there, there's also gold, of course, and I think a lot of people think of gold, but the, by volume and by value, the largest uh, or most significant mineral to be extracted would be copper. Uh, it would be an open pit mine, which means uh, the company would dig a giant hole in the ground. Um, as I mentioned before, you know this is a very wet region, and so in order to keep the the open pit from filling back up with water, uh, there would be huge groundwater wells that would essentially pump pump the area dry, so that they could keep the mine pit. Uh, you know free from filling with water um, so that all of that groundwater would be discharged and pumped into the nearby streams to to wash away there would also be a huge tailings uh, pit associated with this mine where they would where the company would uh, you know store the mining materials before processing and it would be a huge dam facility uh, that would, uh, have to store the toxic waste from the mine pit forever. Um, you know, because of the geology and the the chemical composition of the rocks in the area, there would be forever risks of toxic pollutants draining out of this facility into the nearby rivers. And so, you know, even if everything went in the rosiest, of scenarios and everything went according to plan, you would forever have this massive waste pile that required constant attention, constant maintenance, and could essentially never be put back the way it was. You also have, you know, pipeline systems in order to uh, transfer, uh, you know, gas and and energy for the facility. You have a, a huge need for an energy infrastructure because this is a remote area you'd need new power plants you'd need new transmission lines you'd need to build a road network in order to haul the the ore off site um, and you would have a huge uh, port facility in order to actually you know have ships that could carry the the ore away so you would have a, a huge facility. This would be, you know, the total deposit is is about 11 billion tons of ore. Um, the, the application that the Pebble Partnership submitted to the Army Corps of Engineers was for just a fraction of that deposit, about one eighth of the deposit. And, you know, of course we know that, you know, that would be the initial phase of the mine. No, you know, no company goes in, builds a mine and, you know, seeks to extract just the first eighth of a deposit. So, you know, there's a a difference between the scale of the application and the scale of what we would eventually see. Um, But it would, this would be the largest mine of its type in North America, it would produce uh, volumes of water that are orders of magnitude greater than any other Uh, mine in Alaska, or comparable mine elsewhere in North America. So it, you know, this would be a facility and a site just on a scale that's almost hard to comprehend.
0: And in looking at the, say, Bristol Bay organization website, there's a couple of stats I wanted to throw out for our listeners that, that kind of fill in some of the detail of what you described. They estimated that the approximate mine area footprint was 15 square miles, that the road system that they would have to develop just to process the ore and, and, and do the operation was more than 100 miles, almost 200 miles of pipelines, and then a deep water port in the Cook Inlet to allow the ore ships to come in and haul away the copper or whatever it is that they were producing. Huge project. and. Uh, I just wonder, was there, was it the opinion of Trout Unlimited and others, was there any way conceivably that something of this magnitude built into this intricate braided stream bay system, the headwaters of these, uh, the uh, the waters that, uh, that feed into the bay and support these fisheries. It just seems impossible that you could put something of this size in the middle of a system like that. And hope to maintain the fishery. I mean, w- was it just obvious this could not be done, or was this what argument could you possibly make for this? I'm sorry, this bullshit proposal. <laughs> I mean, I, right. it just so looks impossible to me.
3: It, it it really is the, you know, there has been a ton of scientific work that has has gone into this project in this area trying to answer the questions you're raising here and you know uniformly the the feedback from that research has been that this is just an insurmountable obstacle so you have you know you, there even if everything goes according to plan right and there is no unexpected complications which of course is an un, you know an unrealistic assumption for us to make but if if everything goes perfectly you have, you know, the, the a tailings dam facility holding back a, a potential deluge of toxic waste that you have to manage in a seismically active area for eternity. You have volumes of water being produced that are just astronomical and well beyond anything that has been accomplished elsewhere. You have, uh, you know, roads crossing, uh, a region that has no comparable infrastructure, right? This isn't uh, you know, it's not like we're building a road outside of a place that's otherwise, or a, a mine outside of a place that's otherwise developed. This is in the middle of nowhere with, with no infrastructure. Um, so it's, you know, there, there, there's just no way that this could occur in a way that's benign to the fisheries. You have the, you know, the headwaters of, the two major rivers feeding Bristol Bay, that would be assumed by this mine proposal, and you know, there's a lot of interesting research that has gone into, you know, fisheries populations, and I, you know, I'm not a, I no longer consider myself a scientific expert, so I can, you know, hardly do the research justice. But essentially, you have the the fisheries in Bristol Bay, at large are kind of the sum of all of its little components. And in one year, you know, a particular run within Bristol may might be down, but the rest of the region will be up and make up for that distance, that difference. And if you start building a massive, you know, North America's largest mine on top of a huge subsection of the region, you have taken away a lot of those populations and a lot of the ability of the fisheries to kind of balance itself out in lean years. And so even if nothing goes wrong, you're going to have a huge negative impact on on the number of fish. You're also going to just change the character of the region, right? This is a region that's comprised of small communities, uh, many of which are reliant on a subsistence lifestyle as existed 100 years ago. Uh, you, You can't you know, plop this sort of industrial development on top of that, those communities and expect their cultures and their way of life to remain intact moving forward. And then, of course, you know, we're Trout Unlimited. You also, you know, we're also concerned with the sport fishing aspect. And, you know, people don't go to Alaska because they want to fish a tailwater at the bottom of a massive dam. They're going because they want you know, to fish a wild experience. They wanna be in a remote area and that would simply be lost with this type of development. And that's if everything went right. Now, the reality of, of the thing is that in large mines like this, nothing ever goes hundred percent right. Um, the same designers that put together the the plans for the tailing facility also Put together the plans for the tailing facility at the Mount Polley mine in British Columbia. That tailings facility failed catastrophically, uh, essentially unloaded the entire tailings into the nearby rivers and and ruined that area's fisheries. So nothing, you know, it, it's it's unreasonable to expect everything to go according to plan. And even if everything went according to plan, it would be catastrophic.
1: Well, nothing, we don't do anything 100% right at at any time. So when the stakes are this high, that is a a big old red flag, I think, for many of us. And it definitely seems, as Peter, as you said, just from the 50,000 foot perspective, that this is an awfully big, Risk for the reward of a large copper deposit. Now, um, Trout Unlimited. There you are. You've got some partner organizations. Bristol Bay. If you look it up on on the map, ladies and gentlemen, it's way. You want to talk about a wilderness area? This is way out there. And I'm curious to know what your strategy was uh, at that point. You're you're right. Uh, it's kind of like a civil war battle. You know where you have both you know, the moment had arrived, the Trump administration had been elected in 2016. I'm sure it was kind of braced for impact, but, but what was your strategy at that point? How did you, uh, attempt to, to subvert this project?
3: So there's, you know, getting the permits and building a mine of this size and scale is a, you know, it's a big endeavor in itself, right? There's, it, it's capital intensive, it talk, takes a ton of money. There's a, a host of uh, federal and state permits that are required to uh, to build a mine of this sort. It's on state land, as I mentioned before, so that, um, that has some unique aspects to it that we had to take into account. And as I also alluded to, there was a, a proposed there were a series of proposed limits uh, from the Obama era EPA that is a legal matter. So these were, it's called a proposed determination under section 404 C of the Clean Water Act. Those proposed uh, limits, so long as they were in effect, limited the Army Corps of Engineers ability to grant a permit to develop the mine. And so the very first kind of Uh, hurdle that we faced was when the pebble partnership applied for its permit to the army corps of engineer and this is a this is a permit to to dredge and fill wetlands and streams basically to you know plop the uh the mine waste in in the rivers and streams at the headwaters of of the bristol bay region um so we You know, the Army Corps initiated uh, an EIS process. They had to prepare an environmental impact statement. Mm -hmm. That had a host of public uh, comment periods that we, as well as others, engaged in. You know, the one thing that we've had going for us for a very long time on this project is that people in Alaska and people throughout the country, you know, by and large recognize that this project is a terrible idea. And so, you know, we have, we have the public on our side, both, both in Bristol Bay, in Alaska, as well as nationally. And that has really been key. Mm-hmm. We've had a, you know, a diverse coalition of, you know, sport fishermen, commercial fishermen, Alaska native interests, as well as just people that care about clean water um, that have really gone to bat time and again on this issue. Um, so we, you know, the, the first order of business is to make sure that, you know, the troops are mobilized, right. That everybody, um, you know, is able to speak up, make their voice heard, understands the process. You know, we also have had, um, you know, this has been a really politically charged issue in Alaska. You know, it's an issue that gets the attention of our congressional delegation, Uh, our governor, of course, as well as, uh, you know, numerous members of Congress outside of the Alaska delegation. So we've, you know, we have spent, um, you know, and been fortunate to have help from uh, allies in Congress, um, you know, to help bring attention to the issue.
0: So the, you know, one of the, go ahead. Uh, well, I, I wanted it, wondered if you could kind of quickly give us a score sheet on the perspective of the Alaska congressional delegation and the governor. Uh, was it a split decision here? Were there supporters for the mine, or what, what was the uh, temperature of the uh, the elected officials, the federal elected officials, and the governor?
3: Sure. So you're going back to the the Obama era when the EPA proposed restrictions on on mining and on of the pebble deposit. Uh, The Alaska delegation has has been outspoken that it thought those proposed protections were not the way to go. And, uh, you know, both of our senators, our congressmen, as well as uh, our then governor opposed those restrictions and viewed it really as the federal government kind of, you know, telling the state what it what it can and can't do. Um, you know, Senator Murkowski in particular has long, uh, and I obviously can't speak on her behalf, but has, has often made comments basically saying that she wanted, you know, the permitting process to play out. She wanted to see what the Army Corps of Engineers had to, had to say. Um, Senator Sullivan has, has taken a similar stance, uh, at times, of course, an interesting thing there. Is that he was the commissioner of the Alaska Department of Natural Resources before he became senator, um, and you know the Alaska Department of Natural Resources under his uh, direction, you know often permitted and oversaw kind of the exploration activities that had led up to to the permit application, and so there you know Senator Sullivan had some some history with the issue. Uh, At the time, our our governor, um, you know, didn't, our our governor at that point um, really was, I think, trying not to take sides on the issue. Um, Since uh, Governor Dunleavy has become elected, he has been a very outspoken advocate of the pebble mine. Um, He has really not been helpful in many ways, uh, and it has really been frustrating that his his administration and the state of Alaska have really bent over backwards to support the pebble mine, despite you know the overwhelming majority of Alaskans time and again saying that they don't want this project, that it's a bad idea and a waste of money. So the 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 governor has definitely been an adversary here. Congressman Young um, hasn't been as strong an advocate for the mine as as the governor, but he is, you know, he uh has is a you know has not been helpful either um maybe i'll is I'll is it in his
1: district is is he the the congressman whose district the project is in proposed project
3: yeah so we we just have one uh representative uh, in alaska how, so all three big big oh, mighty i didn't state. know
0: that That's right. get one congressman <laughs> yeah, right. for the
1: entire
0: state i didn't
1: so it is, is in his district it is in his district so it is, is yes. so there are three but all of these people the the senators the governor and the congressman are all statewide elected officials that is interesting they are
3: so they're yes yeah, so they're you know, they're very in tune with, uh, with this issue. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of, you know, it's it's typical for politicians to not want to take a position on an issue unless they have to, right? They like mm-hmm. to keep their options open. And I think in the early days, we saw some of that playing out, right? The You know, I, I think, um, you know, our, our Congress delegation you know, was very aware of Alaskan's view of this project, you know, want, were inclined to be um, pro-resource extraction, but really wanted to kind of wait and see, <laughs> you know, and not stick yeah. their neck out uh, one way or another before they had to.
1: Well, I mean, this begs the question, Why? why in the hell would the governor be so such an such an an opponent to y'all such a supporter of this project when as you said time after time it seems the people of Alaska the politics would not support this just just by the raw numbers what what is it what is it what's in it for him yeah how do you account for that we're curious about that we know you can't speak for him but what's your take yeah what's your is there some backroom deal I mean I'm not trying to I mean it just seems peculiar it seems genuinely peculiar
3: you know, I um, you know, I I can't say what the governor is thinking on this. He is he has clearly bent over backwards to to support this project um, despite all its negative aspects. Uh, you know, his you know, Alaskans overwhelmingly uh, view this project negatively. You know, polling shows that something like ninety percent of of residents of the bristol bay region oppose this project if you expand it out statewide you know you're 60 63 percent of alaskans in most polls say this is a bad project and we should not be supporting it And we also have frankly you know the the alaska budget um is really in turmoil right now we have had uh you know a, a huge deficit in our state's budget for a number of years now. So the fact that the governor keeps putting state resources and time and money behind this project really just, um, you know, clearly he doesn't have the best interests of Alaskans in mind here and has, you know, has some other ideological or, you know, some other political motive because if he's, you know, if if he's looking out for Alaskans' interests, he would be talking very differently about this project. But I, I can't speculate. Why well, we'll
1: just put, put a way. big question mark over the issue. <laughs> but I am suspicious, I'll tell you. Now, I want to you you mentioned before, and I, I, I just kind of want to let you unleash on this. It's state owned land. Um, how right. is how, I, I, I have some foggy recollection that there was some deal struck between the feds and the state of Alaska and the feds might have given the state some land. But how, how did the state come to own uh this this area and um how does that
3: impact the permitting process for the project so when when alaska became a state it uh was allowed to receive certain lands uh and this is you know every state when it became a state uh received lands and so the the lands in the Bristol Bay region, um, came into state ownership and, uh, you know, it, it does present some, some interesting aspects here. Um, there is a Bristol Bay area plan that is a state created kind of management plan for the area. It has had, uh, you know, an interesting history where at times it has focused, uh, you know, on the record, it has always recognized the, you know, the incredible value of the fisheries and the waters and the recreational values. Um, you know, it it the state also clearly has an interest in, you know, kind of exploiting natural resources, and so, uh, you know, the state has, um, you know, has has pushed for you know, development of this project um, at various times throughout the course of its history. Hmm. Um, you know, one, despite the fact that the minerals and the land is owned by the state, the navigable waters uh, are subject to federal regulation. And yeah. so the federal government has authority over, you know, the streams and the rivers that, uh that support interstate commerce. So the commercial fishing industry, for example, um, you know, Bristol Bay supplies salmon, especially sockeye salmon to the entire world. And so the federal government has regulatory authority over the waters uh, of the Bristol Bay region. And so because the area is so wet, you know, there's simply, you know, there's rivers and streams and wetlands, you know, throughout the entire area There's a huge role for the federal government um, in deciding whether and how mining can take place in the Bristol Bay region. And so what you have is you have the Pebble Partnership needing to apply to the state of Alaska for the mine operations plan and for various permits to use state land, but then you also have the Pebble Partnership needing to apply to the federal government, and in particular to the Army Corps of Engineers for permits to impact the waters of the region. Yep, And, and so that's really the where the line comes down between the state and the federal management. Thank you.
0: Yeah, that's very helpful to understand. And as you said, the Pebble Partnership Northern Mining uh, applies for the Section 404 permit, the dredge and fill permit under the Clean Water Act they they submit that application in December 2017 uh, as the Trump administration is getting its feet on the ground. Uh, the environmental impact statement, which evaluates whether to issue that decision or at least evaluates the potential impacts of issuing that permit, that process takes a couple of years. So I'm going to drag our listeners ahead of a little <clears throat> while here. The final environmental impact statement I understand is released in a, is it June 2020 somewhere in the summer of 2020?
3: That sounds that sounds about right. Yes.
0: And what I, I what surprised think. me and 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 we're talking about you know this notion that the door was perhaps open, the moment was right for the partnership to get the federal approval for the uh, the pebble mine under the Trump uh, administration, but lo and behold. In November, I think it was November 25th, 2020, right around Thanksgiving last year, uh, the US Army Corps of Engineers denies the 404 permit for the federal mine. And uh, sitting down here in Austin, Texas, I following this project along, I was surprised to see that. Um, can you talk about uh, the decision by the Corps of Engineers, and, I, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe they denied it in November, uh, tell me what you guys thought of that decision. Were you surprised by it, and and what did you make of it?
3: So we had, um, you know, it was interesting. The Army Corps of Engineers, you know, if you just kind of step back and look at its regulatory history, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers quite often, you know, a grants permits and allows projects to move forward. And at times even seems to, you know, want to reach that conclusion. I think Um, that's fair. I think that's a fair conclusion. And so, you know, there were a lot of steps, particularly early in the EIS process, you know, where the core of engineers just seemed like they were full steam ahead. You know, they, they rejected requests for extra time to review, materials and provide comments they were you know frankly horribly dismissive to the tribes who were cooperating agencies throughout the process and trying to you know get their uh local community and you know native government voices heard uh you know the the core was just you know, also incredibly rushed, frankly, you know, we think, well, it took two years, that's a long time. Well, if you look at a project like this, it's mm-hmm. much more typical for the permit process to take six or seven years, Indeed, um, even more. Yes. And, you know, so, so things were definitely rushed. Um, you, you know, the, the EIS, I think gave, uh, you know, short shrift to a lot of really important issues, the water issues. The fisheries issues you know there there was never a uh a, an independent review of the tailings dam and the potential for for that facility to fail and really a, a you know adequate evaluation of what the consequences of the tailings facility failing might be you know so there were a number of you know almost shortcuts well they were shortcuts there were a number of things that the army corps of Engineers really should have done a better job on. So there was a lot of indication that, you know, this project was likely to move forward. Right, a little bit nervous, right? Right, but if you, you know, if you sifted through kind of the narrative and, you know, got past the introduction of the EIS, there were also a lot of alarm bells uh, that the Corps did pick up on. Um, You know, the Department of Interior raised a number of concerns uh, in particular, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service raised a number of concerns. Uh, even the EPA itself uh, raised a lot of concerns about some of the water quality issues and water management issues. So you, you know, you had this rushed, abbreviated process, but but just below the surface, percolating were all of these, you know, all of the concerns that we had been raising, that others had been raising. Um, being raised by the federal agencies themselves, the career,
2: you know, the right. career
3: staff within the agency saying, you know hold on a minute, what about this? You know what about that? So and a little so,
0: a little traction was gained, it sounds like.
3: Exactly. And then we had um, we made a, a, a real concerted effort starting about a year ago, working with our our partners in the the angling and hunting world to really, you know, do some direct outreach and appeal to the Trump administration to try and bring to light some of these issues that were just below the surface. And, you know, I think what happened, I I mean, you know, you have to speculate a lot about some of these issues, but, you know, ultimately, you know, the Army Corps was rushing ahead, had identified a number of serious issues, um, but really I think was, you know, doing what it typically does, trying to move a project forward and figure out how to grant a permit. Um, Finally, what it came down to was we had, you know, a a huge impacts to, you know, direct impacts to the loss of wetlands, to the loss of stream fish habitat. Um, And, you know, the realization that there really was no way to compensate for these impacts. You know, oftentimes if you have a huge project having direct impacts on waters or wetlands, you'll try to do some restoration somewhere else to to essentially make up for that impact. And so, uh, you know, this past fall, um, the Army Corps of Engineers essentially gave uh, the Pebble Limited Partnership notice that it had it had to submit a new compensatory mitigation plan. That it needed to figure out how to essentially make up for the impacts that would be caused by the proposed pebble mine.
0: Okay, let me let me ask a question here because I was mm-hmm. interested in that issue following it down here in in, in Texas uh, about the compensatory mitigation standards that were being applied to the project, um, and it looked like and. I, and I know you'll you'll help me out here. Uh, that the focus of the compensatory mitigation, as you would expect, was on streams and wetland habitat. Um, I didn't get the feeling that the the compensatory mitigation or the EIS really fully um, explored the potential threat to these, as you say, 30 to 50 million salmon who come back to this bay system and into these rivers for spawning, that the fishery impact seemed to be a bit on the side. Is that a fair conclusion or was I I just didn't go deep enough into it? Did did you feel as Trout Unlimited that the potential impacts to the fishery sport and commercial were fully dealt with by the Corps?
3: no they weren't the the compensatory mitigation was very much focused on kind of the physical habitat impacts at the mine site itself and right. there wasn't you know there wasn't a focus given on you know the impacts to downstream users right to the commercial fisheries to the the sport fisheries to the subsistence users that have um you know, been there for thousands of years. So that that really, unfortunately, yeah. wasn't wasn't the focus. It was you know, you're gonna you know, Pebble Limited partnership. You're planning to destroy a bunch of wetlands. What are you gonna do to build new wetlands? Yeah, there
0: were up? culverts. There were discussion of culverts and hydrologic connections and doing some dune set. I mean, uh, wetlands is minor. I thought it was anyway, Tyler. Well, it, given it
1: will... I'm I'm sorry, Austin. I mean, just given the Given the uh, put, you know, hazard associated with a spill over eternity, it seems like it was de minimis in comprehending the fact that that would be, uh, that would echo throughout the entire ecosystem. I mean, it it would just have the the impacts are incalculable. Uh, frankly, I mean, um, right. but 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 uh, you have a thought. You want to get in on that, and then I have a question. But go ahead.
3: Well, so th- I, I do have a thought on this. Um, you know the the Army Corps of Engineers did not do a good job with the EIS. They did not address the potential for the tailings dam failure. They didn't have an adequate water management plan. There wasn't an adequate there wasn't even an economic feasibility analysis to show that this project was viable. There, there were a whole host of issues. And faults with the EIS that uh, you know frankly make it a woefully inadequate document nonetheless there were enough pieces in that EIS to raise alarm so the the Army Corps of Engineers didn't you know absolutely did not identify all of the various reasons it should have rejected this project but they identified essentially two. One is that the compensatory mitigation plan failed. That you know the Pebble Partnership wasn't able to make up for these direct impacts. And then second, uh, and I've you know I've touched on this a couple times, that the project is just not in the public interest. That you know people hate this project. That <laughs> it's a you know that it's a bad idea when you just kind of weigh the benefits of building it versus not building it so you know where where we stand now as we try and look forward about you know how we're going to to finish the job and in the bristol bay region you know we have an appeal from the pebble limited partnership where the the pebble partnership has said you know army corps of engineers how dare you deny our permit we think, you know, we think you were wrong. Take another look at it. Uh, that's that's wholly still within the Army Corps of Engineers and is a step that uh, the Pebble Limited Partnership needs to go through before it can sue the Corps in court uh, to try and overturn the decision. So that that's the step we're at right now, and we are, you know, we are thinking very hard about how, you know. How defensible is the Corps' decision? Because they obviously did not do, you know, they they didn't identify all of the potential impacts that we must expect from this project, and they didn't do, you know, they did a disservice to uh, the tribes as cooperating agencies, and through consult, you know, the the obligation to consult, um, you know, the, the water issues, the fish issues were all underrepresented. Nonetheless, you know there there is enough in that EIS uh, and in the final decision to support rejecting the project. Right? They didn't they didn't identify every reason why this is a bad project and the permit should be denied, but they identified a couple reasons, uh, and those couple reasons are sufficient to deny this permit.
1: No question. I mean isn't that interesting now uh, that introduces an interesting uh, follow up but I'll, I'll couch it in this general discussion of what are your goals now what are the strategic objectives now we're in a new administration uh, that, that opportunity for the mine uh, has passed it seems and it seems like uh, permanent permanently protecting this area would be a good objective what's what's the path forward um obviously there's still some defense the mining uh, pebble pebble unlimited is that what they're called pebble partnership pebble partnership is still out there they're still gunning um, what's what's the plan going forward here
3: so we've got a we've got a couple of two or three prongs that we're working on one of course we need to kind of finish the job with the army corps of engineers right we we expect that pebble limited partnership is going to eventually sue the corps over its decision and we you know we are taking a serious look at how we can help defend the corps decision in court if we need to Austin, um, a very,
0: so let me just interject yes. there. Are you going to be able to uh, enter, let's say, that the, this gets to court, they, they get through the administrative appeal process, they file suit against the court, they're in federal court. Can you intervene, Trout Unlimited, or other organizations as a party, or are you going to be in the ambicus brief situation?
3: Uh, it's still early. Uh, so, you know, I'll put that caveat there, but we expect to be able to intervene.
0: Okay. Keep going. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
3: Uh, a second piece to kind of be aware of, um, you know, I've, I've referenced a couple times the proposed determination put out by the EPA under the Obama administration. The, the Trump administration, uh, withdrew those proposed protections. And Trout Unlimited is still in litigation over that decision. Mm. So, we, when the Trump EPA withdrew the proposed determination, we sued them and are still in court over that issue. If we prevail, the the proposed determination from the Obama era will be reinstated, uh, and and with that, you know, there that's kind of the first step towards right. potentially providing. An extra step of of protections for the Bristol Bay region. Um, so as we, you know, if if prong one is to, you know, finish the job with the Corps of Engineers, the the second prong is okay. We've defeated this this mine proposal. How do we provide more durable and permanent protections right. for for the region and you know, we've got a couple things that we can work on there. Um, you know, there are administrative mechanisms to, to provide additional protection, such as 404C under the Clean Water Act, where uh, the EPA can uh, put limits on the Army Corps of Engineers ability to issue uh, dredge and fill permits, including out into the future. Right. And so, you know, we're through our litigation, we're defending the, the steps that the EPA took towards that already. and we we'll, are certainly, you know, looking to the Biden administration to take up that issue again Correct. and to, to essentially finish the job there. There's also though, you know, one of the one of the limitations of any administrative action such as 404C, is that it can be revisited by future administrations. So we saw the Trump administration, for example, decide it didn't like what the Obama administration did and uh, withdraw the proposed determination. 404c has been used in other places and has also been uh, at times modified or changed by future administrations. So, you know, 404c is an important kind of piece of the puzzle but one of the things to recognize is that it's not, you know, it's not ironclad. Right. Um, So we've also been, you know, thinking really hard about what Congress's role here could be. We're in a fortunate position uh, where I mentioned before, you know, the Alaska delegation was kind of taking a wait and see stance and wanted to, to see what the Army Corps of Engineers did. Well, when the Army Corps of Engineers issued its decision you know we had some remarkably strong statements from both alaska senators uh against this this mine project huh. um senator sullivan was in a contentious reelection campaign this past fall and you know he made abundantly clear that he supported denying this project's permit that he opposes the project and so now uh you know, he has kind of laid out his position and, you know, there might be an opportunity in Congress there. Similarly, uh, Senator Murkowski has, you know, often been looked at as a more moderate uh, member of the Senate. She has made a number of strong statements um, kind of in line with what Senator Sullivan has said, that she thinks this project is not in the interests of Alaskans. Um, You know, she has as indicated i think a desire to kind of put this issue to bed once and for all
0: hmm.
3: you know so it's starting to feel yeah uh, a little like turn there might in be the corner opportunity in congress
0: that sounds fantastic and i think I'm, i appreciate you going through kind of the complexity of the inner relationship of epa's 404c conditions and that limitation on the course power and and the state's uh, land leasing and mineral leasing rights and what that means and I think what it does for me is, and I hope for our listeners too, is is give you give them a flavor of the complexity of, of the legal uh, tactics and, and and processes involved in a project of this magnitude. Um, and uh, it's important to have organizations like Trout Unlimited, uh, uh, Save Bristol Bay, other activist organizations involved in these processes as commenters and reviewers and litigators as needed uh, to really uh, ensure that the law is followed. So uh, hats off to your group and your team and your affiliated organizations in Alaska for sticking with this multi-year effort. I wanted to, you know, did you pop the champagne when the uh, November 25th, 2020 decision by the court uh, denying the permit, was it celebration time or did you immediately start thinking we're at halftime? What was the reaction of the community up there?
3: It's, you know, it, it, it was a momentous decision, no doubt about it. Uh, and we certainly took, you know, took a moment to celebrate. Um, you know, the, it had been a long fight. Up yeah. until the point where the core denied the permit, you know if if you look at kind of the you know the tides of momentum uh, you know pretty clearly that signified you know a huge advantage for us um, you know we as I mentioned kind of at the outset, you know a number of investors, essentially all of the investors, that are, you know, large multinational companies with the capital to build a project like this had abandoned it and walked away previously. You know, Northern Dynasty, the parent company for the Pebble Limited Partnership is really a pretty small player in the international mining community. They have never built a mine. Uh, They don't, currently own any mines outside of um really you know, the this these sort of were the guys deposit. who were gonna
0: going to run this thing who have never i mean come on i mean it, it, the, at least you would hope that the people who would have one to, yeah take the risk to uh, to the resource would at least have a track record that you could look at that's kind of a stunning fact they're rookies it's it-
3: it, it really is. They are, um, you know, they, they don't have the experience, the expertise or the capital to pull off a project like this. And, you know, having having the core deny the permit, I think is, you know, just another huge, you know, indicator that this project is just asinine. And there's a reason why all of the big players have walked away from it already. Um, you know, and and frankly don't wanna to touch it with a 10-foot pole. So, you know, that the job isn't done, but, you know, considering where we were, uh, you know, six months ago, getting to the point where the Army Corps of Engineers denied the permit, you know, science was allowed to win the day, uh, and the, the public interest at stake here was, was finally recognized as part of the decision You know it's really hard to understate the significance of that decision and the you know the serious blow that that dealt to uh pebble partnership clearly the job is not done and you know we need to we need to finish the job and make sure that you know if some you know if, if some company gets a wild hair and decides to invest in this project if you know if somehow northern dynasty raises the capital you know that that they can't come back another day and apply for another permit uh, you know we, we need to finish off the job here but you know it, it's um, you know it, it was definitely uh, time to celebrate when we got the decision and then immediately get back to work.
1: Austin uh, tell our audience uh, how they can become involved in Trout Unlimited or learn about Trout Unlimited or maybe even donate to the organization, uh, that's part one. And part two is, can you pitch uh, trout fishing to the non-fly angler, the non-angler out there in our audience that that might not be a trout fisherman and, and why they should care about trout and Trout Unlimited?
3: Before we go. Sure, see. Yes, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to. So, with with regard to Bristol Bay, you know, SaveBristolBay.org houses a whole host of information regarding the proposed Pebble Mine, regarding our work in the Bristol Bay region, and and is kind of a clearinghouse for all things related to this issue. And you can go, you know, it's SaveBristolBay.org. You can go there. We've got uh, links you can follow to donate. To uh, take action and support our work moving forward, as well as to, you know, learn more about all the issues we've d- been discussing. We also Trout Unlimited has chapters throughout the country, so if you're in, you know, if you're in Texas, if you're in Montana, if, you know, wherever you might be, odds are very good we have a local chapter that's taking on projects in your backyard, and you know, we'd love to have you involved with some of those. You know, just as far as fishing goes, you know, it, it's interesting. When I started fly fishing, you know, I was probably seven or eight, and it was really an activity that my dad would kind of drag me along for. And we'd go out, and you know, I'd scare the fish away, and probably you know, prevent my dad from yeah, throw a fish few
0: rocks in the water.
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and and as I as I have grown older i've come to realize that you know those memories are some of the most important memories from my childhood and now that i have you know i have a nine-year-old and a couple days away from being a six-year-old you know those those are also the memories that are most important to me and so and the, and the you know the experiences that we're developing now so for me you know it's much less about catching a fish or um you know, catching a big fish, although don't get me wrong, that's, you know, that's an important part as well. Uh, For me, it's much more about, you know, being out in the rivers, uh, especially with my kids or, you know, my parents, you know, finding, you know, the bugs that are underneath the rocks, seeing the fish, Mm -hmm. you know, flitter away, Uh, you know, just being out exploring, seeing, you know, the great wilds that surround us. And so, you know, you don't have to fish Um, But I will say that at least in my mind, you know, getting out, playing around in creeks, seeing the fish, seeing the bugs, uh, you know, seeing the wildlife that surround the creek is really, you know, something special and something that we all need to do more of.
0: That is beautifully said and I couldn't agree more. I, I've spent many wonderful days fly fishing on the Deschutes River in eastern Oregon, one of my favorite places to go. I had no idea you were a fly angler. You know when I was in law school in Oregon, we'd get over to the Deschutes and try to catch steelhead and, and uh, let's just say I wasn't never got one of those but did catch some beautiful trout. Uh, but, you know, Austin, thank you so much for talking about that, because uh, it really brings into focus why it matters, what we're talking about in this show, in the pebble mine, um, the extraordinary importance of these natural areas that are, that, on their own, without any input from us, can generate 30, 40, 50 million salmon coming into a base system every year. It's what natural productivity is about it's economically significant it's spiritually significant it's why you can't throw a mine in the middle of the best damn you know salmon fishery bay in the world that just makes no sense and i'm just uh want to thank you and all the other activists up in alaska who've worked so hard on this pebble mine project and i hope you can put the final nail in the coffin and uh Move on to doing some of that restoration work you were talking about down in southeast Alaska and get on to protecting the Tongass National Forest, which is under some threat right now as Mo- well.
1: Moving from defense to offense. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I, commend, I commend your work uh, through the Trump years, and this is a huge victory. And uh, I echo everything Peter said. And I just, I really do hope that uh, the, con- the Congress, yeah. the president, at the federal level just step in and protect this area it should we shouldn't have to do this again it's a waste of damn time
3: absolutely well this is um this has been great and uh, a real privilege to be on your show i want to thank your listeners for uh for their interest and participation here it's You know it has been a group effort uh to get where we are and it will be a group effort to get this thing across the final finish line right on
0: ladies and gentlemen it is austin williams he's the alaska director of law and policy for trout unlimited uh coming from us from to us from anchorage alaska austin thank you very much for taking time and walking us through this amazing area and this incredible battle you guys have been in and uh, we just appreciate what you're doing up there
3: Thank you so much. Dingin mama no Been a boy take one bro.